Uh, hello and welcome to you, our listener, be you uh, deer, elk, buffalo, <laughs> bison, uh, expensive or cheap. Um, we don't you have any cheap our... listeners, Cam. No. Um, well, they are all our dear listener. So uh, we're glad that you've decided to join us uh, for this, our seventh episode, I believe, uh, which means we're passing the halfway point of this quarter already as we talk about stewardship. Uh, my name's Cameron. G'day, Ken here. Yeah, I'm Luke. And I'm Lachlan. And I'm looking forward to this one because... The topic that we're going to talk about this time... Because the last one was terrible. Well, the topic that we're going to talk about this time is what I thought the last topic should have been about. So let's see how we go. <laughs> Do you want to kick us off, Lock? Um, take us to the... I believe the passage we're going to use... Uh, Matthew 25, is it? Yeah. So the topic is called um, Unto the Least of These. And it it's a general exploration in some ways of, of the poor and less resourced and less fortunate um, in our communities and in our societies. So we're going to turn, obviously, to a passage that uses this phrase, Matthew 25, the parable of the sheep and the goats. We'll pick it up in, in verse 31 of Matthew 25. And my, my comment grows out of the fact that last episode, if you if you haven't listened to it, it's probably worth going and having a listen, to be honest. Last episode was titled Laying Up Treasure in Heaven, the, the Sabbath School discussion was. Um, and when I first read that, I thought that the way we laid up treasure in heaven was by our, our actions of help and assistance and mercy and kindness uh, to the least of these. But it seemed that the least of these didn't get much of a mention. Uh, we did, because it's a, it's a theme that, uh, that, that we do feel somewhat passionately about. Um, but we held ourselves back so that we could discuss it on this episode. So let's jump straight in. I think we should just read um, the parable of the sheep and the goats. It's well known, but let's read it so it's refreshed in our memory. I'll start perhaps at verse 31 um, and see how we go. But when the Son of Man comes in his glory and all the angels with him, then he will sit upon his glorious throne. All the nations will be gathered in his presence, and he will separate the people as a shepherd separates the sheep from the goats. He will place the sheep at his right hand and the goats at his left. Then the king will say to those on his right, Come, you who are blessed by my father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the creation of the world. For I was hungry and you fed me. I was thirsty and you gave me a drink. I was a stranger and you invited me into your home. I was naked and you gave me clothing. I was sick and you cared for me. I was in prison, and you visited me. Then the righteous will answer him, Lord, when did we see you hungry and feed you, or thirsty and give you something to drink? When did we see you a stranger and invite you in, or needing clothes and clothe you? When did we see you sick, or in prison, and go to visit you? The king replied, Truly I tell you, whatever you did for the one of the least of these brothers and sisters of mine, you did for me. Oh, it's great in King James Version, just as a side note. Have you got it in the King James Version? Yes. Go. When saw we thee a stranger and took thee in? Yeah. That's just that's just one example. I won't read the whole thing. But it, yeah. it, 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 it's very nice. Um, yes, I think everybody knows this verse. It's very famous. Um, but, but why are we talking about it now, Locke? Well, this is the phrase, um, the least of these. Um, so, so I guess... I guess there's a couple of things that are 
jumping out. There, there are a couple of things, and we we can choose, we may not have time to talk about all of these. The first is in a in a season where the topic is stewardship and we're discussing it. Um, we are all discussing it as people who are effectively wealthy and well resourced. In a, even even though we we all have um, you know sometimes quite legitimate reason for for wishing for a little bit more cash available um, and on hand. The I think the one of the things that we get here is a reminder that there are people for whom a discussion of stewardship is almost irrelevant. The discussion they need is survival. Um, so I think we should acknowledge right up front that the there are people whose situation is is beyond just uncomfortably poor and is just outright um, desperate. And and so there is a certain sort of middle class comfort even to be having a discussion about stewardship and what it means. Mm. Um, so that that's something that I felt was worth commenting on at this at this roughly halfway point through this theme. But the other thing is just really obviously well I mean it's it's very difficult I think to misunderstand this this parable that Jesus is saying. It's one of the brilliant things about it really. Yeah, it's and it's it's calling us so notice there are a few things we commented on this in our last in our last week's episode. We commented that the people who are being I'm trying to think of the right word. Congratulated, um, honoured, uh, recognised for having been generous to God, haven't themselves even recognised it as such. Now, have they even recognised it as a sacrifice? This is this is the question. Um, but this is this seems to me to be the way that treasure is is built up in heaven. That the treasure that we build up in heaven is is the other people that we positively impact in that direction. That feeds in a little to uh, the question that I left with the listeners last week and didn't um, answer, and what is heaven? Hmm. Um, And I think so often we think of heaven as a place distant in space and time. Um, And no doubt there are you know, those eternal elements to it. Uh, but Jesus came and spoke of the kingdom of heaven here now. Um, so he wasn't just talking about laying up treasures somewhere in a future uh, time and different place. Um, indeed, the heavens are around everybody and uh, in, in the, the Jewish conception. Um, that, that, that is this, the, the air we breathe, uh, mm. is part of the heavens. And, and this is, um, uh, this is here and now, um, is where we need to be making these decisions. Uh, not because of something in the future, but because of the reality that faces us here and now. I would submit that here and now is the only place in which we can make decisions. Mm. Well, that's true too. Unless someone's figured out a way of deciding things in the past. Yeah. <laughs> or future. <laughs> well, Tom yeah. Cruise could do it in Minority Report, but... Um. Yeah. Well, uh, no, an interesting, an interesting uh, case study, because even in a movie with precognition and time travel, he could only act in the present. That, that, that's so true. Yeah. And indeed, <laughs> didn't necessarily well, get it right. Um, so yes, it was it was the interpretation mm. of visions and dreams. Mm. It's actually quite biblical. Mm. 
Um, I, anyway, yeah, no, I'd just like to. Di- I'd like to call us back onto topic. Oh, <laughs> no, I, sorry I'd to like take to, you away, Lachlan. <laughs> no, it's there's one. There's yeah. sometimes I fear we sound slightly skeptical, uh, critical of things that are in the lesson. But there's a sentence here in the introduction to this week's one that I think is is so spot on. It's just worth reading straight out. Um, uh, because we are managers of God's business, helping the poor is not just an option. It is following the example of Jesus and obeying his commands. Mm. There's there's a whole bunch of dimensions to this. Um, it, one of them is it's really fascinating that the Jewish religious text starts not with where any, any other group of people that would have started a, a, a book or writings on which their faith would be based would start with the story of the Exodus because that's where they form as a political entity and it's great defeat of their enemies and all the rest of it. The book of Genesis does not start with the Jewish nation. Mm. It starts with the creation of all people and all people are made in the image of God. So the reason the reason why the Jews were prohibited from making any graven image was because they were surrounded by the image of God. The foreigner in their gates is the image of God. They get a Sabbath rest. Hmm. The slave in your house is the image of God. They, they're treated well and fairly. So um, the Israelite, fellow Israelites, bear the image of God. It, and this is what Christ says when he, they, they ask him a trick question on tax. And he says, all right, well, show me a coin. Whose picture is on it? Whose image is on it? And they say Caesar's. And then he says, all right, we'll give to Caesar the things that have Caesar's image and give to God the things that bear God's image, um, mm. which, which, is, which is super which clever. Which is people. Yeah. So, so if the people around us bear God's image and we see the God, God's image being sullied or trodden down in the world um, because of misfortune, hardship, even people's own bad choices that they've made in the past, and we can do something to step in and intervene and to help. If we're serious about worshipping God, then that's the sense, I think, in which it isn't a choice. Like you say, or like the lesson says, look, uh, if if we're really going to worship God and and the, the thing that is presented... C.S. Lewis said, this is the C.S. Lewis quote for today, uh, he said that the holiest object presented to your senses, apart from the holy sacrament representing the, the body of Christ, the holiest... Uh, object presented to your senses apart from the sacrament is the person next to you is the mm. people you you see around you they they are they are special uh, all all of them i would say including the sacrament the uh, <laughs> you go like well, the the um you're well, i mean to, it, it, that's lewis just, didn't. it's just born it's just yeah I, I, it's very rare that i dare to disagree with lewis yeah. but i mean jesus healed people in the synagogue yeah. you know he put human beings above everything else you know um, I, I yeah anyway leslie i am I'm, I'm reasonably confident i'm attributing this correctly um uh leslie newbigin in his book the gospel in a pluralist society um uh said that the starting point for any uh discussion about christianity and religion uh, is our common humanity. Uh, so we need to start everywhere with the sceptic, with the atheist, with uh, anybody, whatever their religious views. Uh, we are... No, it wasn't. It wasn't Leslie Newbigin. It was Jonathan Sachs. Um, 
uh, we start with our common humanity. And that's that's the basis on which um, we are admonished to look after the least of these. Uh, do not neglect the slave or the widow or the orphan or the people doing it tough because remember you were once slaves in Egypt. Mm. Uh, that it, They are not others. They are you. That's you. Right. And they're um, not slaves because they deserve it. Yeah. It's, it's misfortune, same as yours was. You're not better than them because they're yeah. slaves and you're not. Yeah. Um, at the, in the context of wealth, you're not better than someone because you're more comfortably off. Um, so, um, and that is, in, that is, I think, the biggest problem with a health-wealth theology. Um, the theology promoted by some people that says if you follow God, all your businesses succeed and you grow in influence and power and wealth. The corollary is you're then free to look down on people who are doing it tough because they're obviously hmm. not following God. So um, that's where I think it, it comes in uh, very dangerous. Uh, there's another connection. I've written down a couple of connections here. One of them is the connection between this parable and the previous parable. So the previous parable is all about financial investment. It's a great one on stewardship. You know, the the, the servants with the talents and fascinatingly, God gives different amounts of resources to different people so god is not fair um uh he only expects of them that they put the put it to good use but what what is good use what constitutes good use of the resources we have if you if you see the sheep and the goats as the answer to that question so um in the in the servants with the talents we are admonished to take the resources we have and use them to some good purpose don't just sit on them. Use use them to some good purpose. Well, what is that good purpose? Ah, let me tell you a story about the sheep and the goats. Uh, the good purpose is looking after the least of these. That's mm. that's what constant. That's what the master is looking for. Um, so the two parables. I don't think it's a m- mistake that those two parables are printed side by side. Yeah, I, mm. I'm f- I'm finding. I think that's really really good, Cam, and connected with the. With the fact that in that in that parable of the talents they get given different amounts, um, I'm struck by a contrast that I was going to mention in our last recording, when we were discussing laying up treasure in heaven versus laying up wealth in the here and now, and I didn't because I felt like it was almost too much of a of a side note. But let's try it here, because it seems to me that there are. Uh, a whole range, but let's pick two caricatures that are the extremes. It seems to me there are two different ways of approaching this whole idea. One of them I'm going to call the Mother Teresa model, which is to say, okay, if, I, if I'm going to, if I'm called to help other people and I am called to lay up treasure in heaven and not give, not give as much thought to my own material wealth and, and, and possessions in the here and now, then what I'm going to do is I'm not going to have any possessions. I'm going to dedicate all of my actions and time and agency to the helping of others. None of it to the, you know, a note, Mother Teresa lived a life in which she um, did not have a family of her own, as in children. And those are the sorts of sacrifices that she made. So, that you know, all the questions about how do I manage my family finances and what responsibility do I have towards my own children? Well, for her, the decision was, well, I won't even have children then. Um, I'll take as my children the the needy and suffering so that's fine and we we respect mother Teresa for this and she is rightly kind of considered one of these just absolutely iconic pictures of human generosity 
um, very much the clothing when I was naked and feeding when I was hungry and, you know, all of this stuff that we just read. But then there's a different kind, and I don't know which of the famous philanthropists to use here as a as an icon for this. Um, the first one that comes to my mind is Bill Gates, but as a very avid anti-Microsoft attitude person myself, that does grate a little bit on me. But let's pick someone who's who is able to do immense good in the world because of the material wealth that they've been able to accrue. So the financial management and stewardship that they have experienced and, and, and exercised in the world has left them with a vast amount of material resources. The question is, which is the better approach? Because on raw numerical terms, if you are a multi-billionaire and you can inject funding into treatments and preventions for malaria, it is just, it's just undeniably true that numerically you have helped more of the least of these as a result of the wealth that you had. And if you had gone and become a, a, you know, a Mother Teresa, then you would have been amazing, but not as impactful in the raw numerical terms. But that doesn't, I'm not trying to imply that that's necessarily better than the Mother Teresa. All I'm commenting on is these stories do not instruct us at all about whether we should be decrying all personal possessions or whether we should be trying to be really careful financially responsible stewards that build wealth in order to maximize our impact on the clothing the naked and feeding the hungry and so on like one one resolution for this is to appeal back to luke's rather facetious observation that we can only make choices in the present and at present i'm not bill gates and i don't have those funds so um uh, there's there is a great sense too in which Bill Gates is where he is because of the result of his own choices, but there's an equally great sense in which he is there just by happenstance, like he happened to be born at the right time where there was a boom in technology, computers, and the right age to exploit that, and he happened to go to a school where they had a computer when most schools didn't have a computer, and there's just so many coincidences that happened. In many ways, he sort of just found. I'm, yeah. I'm sure if you'd asked him as an, a young person, he did not seek to become, you know, among the world's richest um, necessarily. Maybe he did, but... Um, I mean, could it be that he is an example of the kind of person to whom the three talents is given? Yeah. You know, if I'm referring back to that parable that, that you've connected yeah. us to. Yeah. There, there, there um, are obviously people to whom for whom life gives more opportunity. Yeah. So... so Maybe there's a sense in which be honest and true on your day-to-day dealings. Um, in the moment you can make a decision, which is here and now, make that decision with the least of these in mind. And not just in mind, but very forefront. Uh, hmm. Coming back to a phrase that I've quoted a couple of weeks in and now because it keeps playing around in my head. I think it's super powerful from Chesterton. You know, how much bigger our world would be if we could become smaller in it. Hmm. I, think, I think that encapsulates... Um, both what is lost and gained by genuinely caring about other people. When you can stretch your mind, and I'm such an amateur at this, but when you can stretch your mind so that other people's concerns are genuinely your concerns, then you become smaller in your own world, which is a sacrifice. But you gain so much because your world is so much larger. Hmm. Um, So there's that sort of uh, paradox um, playing out there. And... um, 
the Bible's full of so many diverse people in so many diverse situations who are used by God. It's it's very hard to recommend, you know, a vocation or a career path or even a income bracket that mm. that most lends you to being able to be used by God. Well, that's well, a really interesting one, and we probably don't have time to go into it today, but wouldn't mind um, following it up at some point uh, in this series of podcasts because I think it's very relevant. Your choice of career, uh, vocation, what, hmm. what what you choose to make your income earning activity or what you're able to because you know not everybody gets a free choice there Mm. um has a big impact on what uh, resources how many talents you have for you know to put it in in the terms of the parable um and i you know i've i've recently been struggling with the idea that i have clearly an inbuilt, almost instinctive aversion that is not something I consciously believe to to work that is not traditionally considered appropriate for Adventists. <laughs> so in my life, I've wanted to be many things. I've never considered it acceptable at some sort of deep moral level, which again is not, is not my intellectual level. Uh, it's, it's not something I consciously believe. I consciously believe anybody in any vocation can serve God, period. But somehow I find it very difficult to consider myself choosing to become an engineer or an entrepreneur or a a, a, a banker or an investor or some, any, anything like that. Anything except fundamentally a medical practitioner or a teacher or a, a theologically aligned uh, career. Um, whenever I try and think of myself doing those, I am always struck by the worry that it is not morally acceptable. Yeah, it's a funny one. Mm. That's connected to, to this idea, right? Religious people are much more likely to be drawn towards, to, to, to respect the Mother Teresa mode of helping the least of these than they are instinctively to be drawn towards the well the way i'm going to make the biggest the way i'm most going to help the least of these is by becoming a really wealthy businessman hmm. um well and it, it it reminds me of an interesting story i heard there it, it, it it's it's in a talk about how the the very uh, the, the entire non-profit sector is is hindered hmm. in its purpose uh, by its sort of fundamentalist Protestant work ethic roots, um, where the idea of doing charity is as a kind of penance. <laughs> um, and you shouldn't feel good about it or be rewarded for it. Uh, and uh, but, mm. but he's talking about the finances of it, and he says, if, if you are a well-educated, well-connected, well-trained business professional, professional manager, you would be an idiot and negligent in your duty to look after others to actually go and work for a nonprofit because you will earn half the salary and you will do more work than you would at a for profit under more stressful conditions with fewer results. Um, and you'll burn yourself out and you'll suffer. Um, and your family will make do on your lesser income. 
If you go and work for just a business, anywhere, whatever, you'll earn twice the amount of money, your family will be considerably better off, you'll get a very good tax break for donating a large chunk of your extra income to the non-profit, and everybody will call you a philanthropist. Yeah. <laughs> well, he yeah. said there's no comparison between the two choices. This is the exactly... second choice is better in every way. Okay, so for that particular person, <laughs> here's the conundrum. This this same conundrum is present, and and actually in this week's Sabbath school lesson, there is a back to back discussion of the rich young ruler and the story of Zacchaeus. Now, I happen to have a whole range of thoughts on both these stories, but let's put them aside because of time. They are in the Gospel of Luke, almost back to back. The rich young ruler is at the um, is at the end of Luke chapter eighteen. And recall the key detail I want to bring out of this story is he is instructed by God, by Jesus. Um, there is still one thing you haven't done because he's been obeying all the commandments since he was young. There's still one thing you haven't done. Jesus says, "Sell all your possessions and give the money to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven. Then come and follow me." Sell all your possessions. The man goes away sad because he was very rich. Only a page over the over the uh, in in Luke nineteen, we have the story of Jesus and Zacchaeus, and um, I actually think there's a lot more going on here. And you guys have already heard me talk about Zacchaeus here on the conversation. Listeners, you may not have, but even just taking it at face value, Zacchaeus is regularly applauded. And in, in Luke 19, verse 8, Zacchaeus stands says, I will give half my wealth to the poor. Half is different from all. So which is the one that Jesus is actually asking us to do? And I think it's a stupid question because the real answer is everyone's situation is different. And there are people for whom being Mother Teresa is, that was, that was her calling. I'm very comfortable to accept that. There are people for whom making a lot of money and being the high financial donor impact in that way that that's their way to make a contribution and it's not rational or sensible to try and compare which one is best i think even in luke 18 and 19 we kind of see this playing out the same thing he does say you give half of all to the poor but that's i think isn't that half of what's left after he's repaid those that he's ripped off four times <laughs> well, let me... how much he ripped them off and i've always wondered well, how he was actually going to achieve that um, even, right. well, even taking account of compound interest that you've spoken about previously, Cam, I, I just don't see that he's... <laughs> because if he's going to compensate them four times what yeah. he's taken off them, he's got to compensate them for their lost opportunity in having the funds as well. So he's giving them... That the author of the story was was not an accountant. Yeah. <laughs> no, I think it suggests... I think it suggests that Zacchaeus is actually protesting his innocence. This, this is my reading and it's not unique to me. It's actually a, a mainstream, although minority reading ah, of the that's story. A good, I hadn't thought of it in that Zacchaeus one. is standing up and saying, you are all against me because I'm a tax collector, but you're all falsely accusing. You misunderstood me. I Go and check your translation now. I'm looking at one that says it in the future tense. I will give half. But a lot of translations just say, I give half of my income to the poor. And if I have cheated anyone, I, I pay them back four times. In the Old Testament, for money, they're called to pay back two times. And for some things like oxen, they're called to pay back three times. In Roman law, there was some paying back fourfold. Zacchaeus is saying, I outdo all of my legal obligations. If I ever cheat anyone, I pay them back beyond 
the requirements of the law. Mm. That makes sense I to think, me. I think that Zacchaeus is actually never been the cheat that we made him out to be. He is an extremely moral and God-fearing tax collector. He just happens to be in a, Luke, he happens to be an agent of God's kingdom working in a non-kosher employment sphere and he has been maligned and jesus comes along to restore him to the community and to justify that he is indeed how does the story end he is indeed he's shown himself to be a true son of abraham Uh and zacchaeus's claim is everyone you're finally listening to me because jesus has actually given me a platform to speak can you all please pay attention to the fact that I am not the evil ogre you have been imagining? That's my reading of the story of Zacchaeus, and it answers your question, Ken. Mm. It, 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 look, it, it does in a, in, a, in a delightful way. Um, and, and I might say this too. Um, it may be that in this day and age, it's not something that you have come across. Um, uh, but it was certainly something that I experienced uh, to a lesser extent than many of those who came before me experienced. Uh, there are within the Christian community, particularly within the Seventh-day Adventist community, or at least there have been, those who have seen the um, the profession of being a lawyer as a disreputable one, uh, something in the nature of a tax collector. Indeed, there are many in the community who, you know, there are a plethora of lawyer jokes, many of which are very funny. Um, uh, <laughs> um, but, um, uh, you know, th- there are people who think it's a dishonourable way uh, to uh, to live your life. Um, I think, in fact, it's quite the opposite. Um, maybe <laughs> self-interest that makes me say that. Um, but I certainly faced people who thought that I was choosing a dishonourable uh, life uh, by becoming a lawyer. Um, so can, I have some sympathy can, for Zacchaeus. Can, can I, what you should have done is done a PhD in maths because if you do that, no one talks to you about what you do because... You're a pariah in a completely different sense because they're, they're, everyone is everyone everyone is inexplicably embarrassed about not being good at maths. And why they should be embarrassed, I can't tell because there's any number of things that I'm not good at. But for some reason, if you tell someone that you're doing a maths PhD, they say, oh, I was awful at maths. And that's the end of the conversation. <laughs> so <laughs> that's, that's a different approach. Um, I've got a, a description here of, I think, the sort of problem that I have, and it's encapsulated so brilliantly, and it's the sort of problem that Christ is trying to overcome when he talks about being willing to give up everything um, and and when he talks about uh, <clears throat> helping the least of these. And I'm, I'm going to read a few excerpts now from um, Leaf by Niggle, which Luke put us onto in one of our very early seasons. Our listeners should go and find it. You can... You can find the complete text online because it's in the public it's, domain. It's a short story. It's it's not a, a full book. Yeah, it, it'll take you half an hour to read. Um, uh, <clears throat> I'll read a few excerpts, excerpts and, and, and summarise some of the themes. Uh, this is how the story begins. Uh, Niggle was a painter. Not a very successful one, partly because he had many other things to do. Most of these he thought were a nuisance. Uh, but he did them fairly well when he could not get out of them, which in his opinion was far too often. Uh, for one thing... Uh, he was sometimes idle and did nothing at all. For another, he was a he was kind-hearted in a way. You know the sort of kind heart. It made him uncomfortable more often than it made him do anything. <laughs> and that's, yeah, that's, that's the that kind is, that I've got. That's the kind that I've got. And then his neighbour turns up, and his na- neighbour is called Parrish. And, um, and 
his neighbour comes to visit him and um, Niggle's painting and there's a knock on the door and he says, come in. And he climbed down the ladder. He's stood on the floor twiddling his brush because he's anxious to get back to his picture. And it was his neighbour, Parrish, his only real neighbour. All other folk lived a long way off. Still, he did not like the man very much, partly because he was so often in trouble and in need of help and also because he did not care about painting, but was very critical about gardening. Uh, when Parrish looked at Nigel's garden, which was neglected, um, and he looked at it often, he saw mostly weeds. And when he looked at Nigel's pictures, which were seldom, he saw only green and grey patches and black lines, which seemed to him nonsensical. He didn't mind mentioning the weeds, a neighbourly duty, but he refrained from giving any opinion of the pictures. He thought this was very kind, and he did not realise that even if it was kind, it was not kind enough. Help with the weeds and perhaps praise for the pictures would have been better. So you've got these two characters next to each other and one of them is a gardener and doesn't understand art and one of them is an artist and can't be bothered with his garden and Parrish has got a sore leg and Niggle has to help him and it's a great inconvenience and um, the great sort of question around which Niggle hovers the whole book is um, what is our legacy? What's the bit of our life that counts? And the way the story plays out is just so beautiful. Um, mm. They go through an experience which is an analogy of death. They catch a train through a dark tunnel and they come to a new land. So it's 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 a very analogous. Um, it, it, it's an allegory. It's very allegorical. And in this new land, um, Niggle learns to become organised and disciplined and a gardener. And he learns retrospectively at one point for reasons which I won't make clear, he's really trying to shape a garden up. And he's, he's sitting there and he says, oh, you know, what I need, what I need is Parrish. <laughs> and Parrish turns up to help him and Parrish has all the knowledge Niggle needs about the particulars of plants and flowers. But Parrish is for the first time overcome by the boldness and audacity of Niggle's design for the garden and how the pieces fit together and the, the aesthetic of the place. And he, he becomes a daydreamer. And... <laughs> and and the two really learn to appreciate each other and and to help each other. And that experience for them is heaven. Mm. Mm. That experience of, of not just, you know, in, in life they tolerate each other and resent each other in turns and, you know, that interplay. They're, and, they're kind and, in the sense that they, they don't let, yeah. they don't act out how much they dislike each other. They don't. They're kind by they repress it. it by repressing their dislike. That's that's sort of the limit of which their kindness goes. But then, but then when they get to the point where they actually realise they need each other to achieve their goal and their vision, um, Niggle wants to paint a picture of a garden. And when he gets to the to the new land, the allegory of heaven, he discovers that the picture he wanted to paint is there in real life. And the picture was a picture of a tree. And he his task is now to create what he was striving for on earth as a mere picture, he's going to create it in the real, in, as in real life, but he doesn't know how, cause he doesn't understand gardens. And so, um, there's that. So they need each other. So they need each other. And, and you discover in retrospect that the only meaningful things that Niggle did were the reluctant and grumbling acts of charity towards his neighbor that when his life is weighed up in the balance and in retrospect and he looks back, he and the narrator and everyone, the consensus is that the meaningful parts of his life were those parts where he helped his neighbour and that the art is completely inconsequential. 
and that was his pride and passion. It's not inconsequential because it has no ultimate meaning. In fact, in heaven he gets to fulfil its meaning. It's not a picture anymore, it's a real garden. Um, uh, it's just that it doesn't have the meaning that he thought it did. The things that were so important to him about his the world in which he lived and the passions he had are sort of simultaneously shown to be so inconsequential and yet so eternal. But the bit that makes the eternal version a success is when the two of them are working together. And that's that's a really sort of fascinating, interesting picture. When we're helping the least of these, it's not like we have X hours in the day and we have to find the correct balance. How many of these can I devote to myself and how many to others? Um, when we get to the point where we, and I am so far from this point personally, but um, when we get to the point where other people's story is our story too, um, that's where even our own things that were most important to us really find their best fulfilment. It's a, I hope I've sum, summarised it well enough, but it, for, a, for a better version, go and read the story. I think you summarised it very well, Cam. I wonder, well, I'm looking at the time, um, uh, and if we're looking for somewhere to wrap up, I thought maybe uh, we might turn to First Timothy um, uh, chapter 6, and it says this. I was interested that you talked, Cam, in, about the story and about the heaven, about the coming age, if you like. Um, and this passage, uh, I think, helps to summarise a lot of what we've been talking about. I've done too far too long a preface to it. Let's just read it. 1 Timothy chapter 6, verses 17 through to 19. Command those who are rich in this present world not to be arrogant, nor to put their hope in wealth, which is so uncertain, but to put their hope in God, who richly provides us with everything for our enjoyment. Command them to do good, to be rich in good deeds, and to be generous and willing to share. In this way they will lay up treasure for themselves as a firm foundation for the coming age, so that they may take hold of the life that is truly life. Let's end on that. Yes, um, that's excellent. Thanks, Ken. Um, please join us again next week, dear listener, and uh, send us your thoughts if you have any you want to share to sabbathschoolfromhome at gmail.com. And please share this podcast with any of your friends that you think might be uh, interested. Uh, I think this quarter is getting better and better from my point of view. I'm, I'm finding it increasingly enlightening and increasingly challenging. So mm. uh, we hope that's your experience also. And uh, we look forward to another discussion next week.